absolutely delighted that Rebecca Davis has decided to interrupt her public holiday and she could well have been strolling along the broad boardwalk with Haji and Miles, but instead she's on the phone line to me and I am more grateful, Rebecca, than I have the words to express. <laughs> You're beginning to make me feel a little bit worried about your mental health. Thank you, though. It's lovely to be here. As a youth myself, John, obviously I have to represent on this particular day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you could still just be a member of the ANC Youth League, could you not? <laughs> if I if I if I forged the relevant certification, though, it doesn't seem they check too rigorously. So, quite possibly, yes. Uh, it's not. It's not the first of April. It is not April Fool's Day. So, I know that is not the reason why you want to tell me shock, gasp, horror that you believe some people who work for government are paid too little. I know it's a counterintuitive finding, John. I recognize that, and it's one that I certainly didn't expect to find. So I started looking into the question of executive pay in government. So I'm talking the CEOs of various government agencies, state-owned enterprises, etc., whose salaries have for quite a while been the subject of sort of concern and ridicule in some quarters. And the reason I was thinking about it in particular was because the man who looks likely to become the next Secretary to Parliament, Olivier George, was previously the CEO of the South African Local Government Association, where he was taking home a whopping package, over 5 million rand last year. And so the concerns have been that he will expect the same salary package at Parliament and that if he's willing to take a cut, it might in some way be suspicious, which is a topic for another day. I think that's an odd, an odd assumption. But it got me wondering how standard those kind of packages were and the full research I, that I um, that I undertook will be published in the Daily Maverick Weekly newspaper this weekend, DM168. But suffice it to say, there are some shockers. I mean, one that has been well publicized before is the CEO of the Road Traffic Management Corporation, right? Marco Sinium TV, who took home almost 9.5 million rand last year. John, let me cut to the chase. When I looked at the top 10 state executives top paid state executives, the medium package they took home last year, the, the 2020-21 financial year, was around 6.1 million rand, right? That's a lot. That's more money than you and I probably could dream of. But it becomes the, the problem becomes when you start comparing this to the private sector, right? So PwC did a study last year where they looked at median take-home pay for CEOs on Johannesburg Stock Exchange over the exact same period. The median salary there was 5.17 million, which is actually less than the one I've just cited for government. But for the top 10 companies, it jumped astronomically to something around 24 million, right? That's what the CEO of a big company in South Africa, a really, a really big one, Mr. Price, that kind of a company can expect to take home. Now, the problem is, John, that some of the CEOs of these government agencies, I'm thinking here particularly of the likes of SARS, the tax collector, and ESCOM. These are massive jobs. You are overseeing tens of thousands of employees. ESCOM has about 45,000 employees. SARS is about 12,000. We are talking revenues of billions and billions of rands. And these particular state executives are actually taking home kind of in the middling rank of the top paid CEOs. So they're taking home around five to seven million rand a year. Again, a lot of money. But, and I've checked this with private sector consultants, 
in the private sector, they could be making double or triple that for that amount of responsibility, for that amount of budget and for that amount of staff. So while it's understandable that many of us find these salaries shocking, the question we have to ask is, if we know that people with the necessary talents and skills and experience can expect to be compensated two or three or four times higher in the private sector, then what expectations should we have of getting the best people for these jobs? Few people would argue that if we don't have the right people in charge of ESCOM, if we don't have the right people in charge of SARS, we are all stuffed. And I really mean that the economy really depends on these bodies. Isn't there, isn't not- there an, oh, sorry to interrupt, Rebecca, but isn't there an argument that there is a reward from fulfilling your public service mandate, that there are certain people who want to work in government because in government you believe, correctly or otherwise, that you can improve the lot of South Africans in general. So Andre de Reuter had absolutely no need to take the ESCOM job, but he took it on as a public service. And don't you, when you commit yourself to doing a job in the public service, in the best meaning of that phrase, that you understand that the, the remuneration might not be what it would be if you were leading a profit-centered business in the private sector. And I, I think anyone who does agree, such as Dorita, I mean, I wouldn't take that job for any amount of money. No. It should deserve our, our thanks, and our gratitude and our congratulations. But what that means, John, is that we are looking for people who not only are the best at their jobs, but also are animated by a very strong sense of public service. And for better or worse, worse obviously, a lot of people aren't like that. A lot of top talent is just going to say, well, stuff that I'm off to the corporate sector where I can make a lot of money. Now, where it gets tricky, John, is obviously that in the corporate sector, CEOs who don't perform, CEOs who lead failing organizations, they get kicked out, they don't get paid bonuses, etc. And this is where it all falls apart a bit in the public sector, because we've seen CEOs getting handsomely rewarded despite the fact that the state entities they lead are failing. The RTMC is hardly an avatar of excellence, is it? It is not. But the point remains, John, that as jaw-dropping as these salaries might seem, if you take one tentative footstep into the private sector, you realize just how astronomical leadership roles in that sector are in comparison. And it raises valid questions, I think. It does. And and there are, of course, debates to be had about whether the CEOs who get those obscenely high salaries in the private sector genuinely deserve them. To what extent does the CEO-ness of them contribute to a company's good fortunes as opposed to, to global events like a commodities boom cycle returning? You know, um, So uh, it, it is a debate which I don't think is going to be settled comprehensively one way or t'other in a while. I'm, I'm Moving on to, to something completely different, I, I've been following the story for a while. Rebel Wilson, an Australian comedian, actress, um, earlier this week put out a tweet saying that she'd found her princess charming. Um, she stopped looking for Prince Charming and she'd found her princess charming. And there was a photograph of her with her new partner. And, ah, oh, Rebel Wilson is, is coming out and saying, I am gay. And then we find out the next day that the reason she did that almost certainly is because a gossip journalist for one of the Australian newspapers contacts her and says, I have solid information that you're now in a homosexual relationship and I'm giving you 48 hours to respond to me or I'm afraid we're going to go with the sources that we have. So she said, okay, better to come from me than from the newspaper. And really, Rebecca, really, are are there enough people still interested enough in 
the sexual preference of somebody like Rebel Wilson for gossip columns like this to exist. I, I was very cross about it. I was I was kind of flabbergasted by it as well, John. I mean, it really did cast Rebel Wilson, you know, kind of heartwarming. I think it was Instagram post actually in a totally new light. There'd already been some skepticism, by the way. I had a friend suggest that maybe she was coming out at this exact point because it was Pride Month or some kind of publicity stunt. It seemed like a bit excessive thing to do for a few likes. But now we absolutely understand the reason why she did it at that exact point, as you say, because she basically had a metaphorical gun to her head. So there are a few things that I find really strange about this. The first is that the newspaper in question, the Australian newspaper, was not some, you know, disreputable tabloid. It was the Sydney Morning Herald, which is one of the country's most prestigious mainstream newspapers. And unfortunately, it doesn't help that that same newspaper, turns out, has this kind of dreadful history including in the 70s, printing the names and telephone numbers and addresses of everyone who went to a gay pride march. So they're already on kind of shaky ground for people with long historical memories. But it's, it's interesting that I read an, uh, a Guardian column on the topic this week in which the author who has teenage children in the UK claimed that her teenage children literally do not understand the meaning of to out as a verb, as in to tell the world that someone else is gay or about their sexual orientation on their behalf. She says that that thought is inconceivable to the younger generation because they cannot understand the circumstances under which someone would not just come out with that themselves. Why on earth somebody would do that on your behalf? That's kind of a lovely, heartwarming thought. I'm pretty sure it would not be the case everywhere in the world. I mean, it clearly isn't, as judging by the Rebel Wilson situation itself. But it does make one think that there's hope for the future. All in all, it's just a throwback. It feels so archaic to the, a terrible time in which, you know, the idea that a celebrity could be revealed, you know, we still see it sometimes in the phrase openly gay or openly homosexual as if the natural state of affairs is to be living in some kind of state of shame and stigma. It is a terrible archaic remnant of that time, which is why I think it gave so many of us such a profoundly icky feeling. But on a much more positive note about that whole development, John, as a gay woman myself, I was thrilled that Rebel Wilson lost half her body weight and had this dramatic <laughs> physical transformation and then came out as a lesbian, a group of people who are often stereotyped as the most dowdy, overweight, unattractive people imaginable. Thank you, Rebel Wilson, for turning that one around for the team. <laughs> and uh, it's a public holiday and it's youth day. So let's talk about Tamagotchi youth, Tamagotchi kids. Tamagotchi kids, intriguing concept. Tamagotchis, of course, were those little Japanese pets in the 90s, tiny little things you could have on your keychain, and they provided you almost nothing in the way of value add to your life other than beeping occasionally when you had to give them a digital pellet. The average lifespan for Tamagotchis, I discovered, was 12 days. John, I had one very delayed in university, and I got so enraged by its beeping that I ran it over with a car because that was the only way to shut it up. I'm probably not one of you the actually, people. You actually put it under the wheels of the car and I deliberately rode over it. It wouldn't shut up, John. I realized <laughs> this is not speaking well it of me. It could have taken its battery parent. out, couldn't you? Do they have batteries? Couldn't, could not. And, you know, they're all welded together. I mean, probably. But obviously I was also angry with it. Point is, point is, I'm obviously not the right person for this future the future I'm referring to is one in which Katrina Campbell, one of the UK's leading authorities on artificial intelligence, says in a new book that Tamagotchi kids may become very much a standard feature of life. And what she means by that is that instead of having real-life flesh-and-blood children of the kind that you and I have, John, mine, 
smeared his own feces all over his bed last night, which is also, <laughs> you know, he better not get near my car wheels is all I'm saying. The point is, people may choose instead to have Tamagotchi kids. And what that, that would mean is that you would go into the metaverse, which is this kind of immersive digital world, and you would have AI children, these kind of fake digital children, who could be programmed to look like you. You would be able to play with them and cuddle them with the use of virtual reality headsets, for instance. They'd be capable of simulated emotional responses, going goo-goo, gaga, etc. And you could choose how fast they grow up, which I think many parents will experience a sense of profound envy about. Whether you want that to go fast or slow obviously depends on the minute of the day, often in parenting terms. But the point is, it would be a way in a, in a world where people are increasingly leery about having children for very good reasons, environmental, political, etc. This, she suggests, in 50 years will be commonplace, that people will be having these virtual kids online instead of Real ones. I'm not sure if this is a development to celebrate or grieve. Your thoughts? I, I don't know. This is this world is just so beyond my comprehension. Um, it's 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 not quite the same thing, but it's in the in the same sort of suburb. Um, I watched a book club meeting last night on Second Life. You know what Second Life is. I'm astonished it still exists, but yes, yes do but continue. No, it, it still exists. And I watched a friend of mine who is an author who'd had an avatar designed for her based on what she said about herself, and she'd sent photographs of her lounge, and so a set had been, a Second Life set had been designed. And then the, the interviewer who had his own avatar, and there was an audience that was avatarish sitting on chairs on the screen that I was watching as this was streamed live on YouTube and two real people in avatar guises one a dragon one a rat were chatting to each other in these guises and I just thought why <laughs> why why don't you just right. talk to yourself as two fully humanized human non-humanoid humans but I, it's kind of the same thing that um i don't know i don't know whether that's it is really fascinating no i didn't know that i remember a sort of moral panic about a decade ago about second life because there were these instances for instance of kind of sexual violence for instance where male avatars would you know do these terrible things to female avatars and then people sort of had no idea lawyers among them whether there was any recourse for people in the real world if that kind of thing would happen it's a uh, apparently, concept. apparently, in one of these book club meetings, a naked avatar. Because apparently, in Second Life, you can go anywhere, and it's it's sort of expected that you will behave yourself when you insert yourself into somebody else's scenario. And apparently, at one of these um, avatar-laden book club meetings in Second Life, uh, a naked avatar arrived and was deeply objectionable. So. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, John, I mean, some of this is overblown. You know, there's, there's also a new pro... Uh, there's, well, there's not new. There's loads of programs now in AI where you can give them advice or you can give them instructions on what to draw. So you can say, I want to see a picture of Joe Biden 
riding a dragon. And then the AI will produce it for you. And I saw a tweet, which I must say made me laugh this week, of someone saying, this man saying, it's time to come clean. I am the little man who has to draw everything inside the AI. And I'm getting so tired of your nonsense. That is sometimes how it feels when you're talking about these things. What, who are the little people inside the things? But speaking of the Bidens, John, yes. I'm dying to tell you about sex. Sexting appears to be a word that Jill Biden, the first lady of the United States, made up. God bless her. Um, And it is in reference to the act of fighting via text. Sexting. Are you a sexter, would you say? Are you known to participate in that particular aggressive sport? (laughs) No, I, I never disagree with anybody. I just humbly say you're right, I'm wrong, and take my punishment like a wimp. Excellent, excellent, John. Um, Well, the rest of us do fight via text quite a lot. The Bidens, it turns out, deliberately fight via text, or Jill Biden chooses to, because she doesn't want the Secret Service agents standing everywhere around the White House to hear her and Joe getting into it because, you know, she has, he has displeased her in some way or hasn't committed to what they're having for dinner tonight or whatever, which I can totally understand humiliating to think of that bodyguards listening in on your every conversation so as a result she has taken to sending him furious kind of under the table whatsapps or texts or telegrams etc and apparently he had to remind her recently that these texts although they are private at the time actually do become part of the official record of congress and he said to her you know you realize that that awful thing you just called me on text is going into the annals of American history. Apparently, she wasn't too faced by this. Now, psychologists <laughs> say that sexting is a terrible idea, has ruinous consequences, it's so passive-aggressive, no one ever understands what you're saying in terms of body language and, you know, emotions via text and everything gets lost. And I have to agree, I think there's nothing worse than being in a social situation with your partner. Thinking everything's going swimmingly and then you happen to glance at your phone and you see words that strike fear into your soul like that wasn't cool, or we'll talk about this later, and you know all is doomed. If you're a I'm sure you are again. saying that only in a hypothetical sense. I'm sure that's never, ever been a real first-life um, you know, first experience for you. Second or maybe third only, John. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. We'll chat again next week.